We come to another psalm this evening as we take time in these summer weeks to continue working our way through the Psalter. And Psalm 25, you might say, uh, as we'll see in a moment why, is uh, I've entitled this evening as the ABC of prayer. The ABC of prayer. This may have changed recently, um, but I remember a few years ago when I took a, a basic first aid course, the, instructor, the instructors used to give a very simple way of remembering the most important parts of first aid. Uh, they used the acronym or the acrostic Dr. ABC. Some of you probably have taken first aid more recently than I have, and this may have changed. But the last time I did it, it was Dr. ABC. Danger, response, airway, hope, hope I'm getting all these right, breathing and circulation. I think that was right. Um, you can correct me afterwards if not. And that was, if you like, the ABCs of first aid. And maybe you've used acronyms for other things in life as well. Maybe you've heard those sort of cheesy talks about uh, the ABCs of business or whatever it might be. Um, it can be helpful at times to use acronyms or acrostics to get things to stick in our minds. And the reason Psalm 25 could be described as an ABC of prayer is because in the original Hebrew language in which this psalm was written, it's actually an acrostic psalm in Hebrew. Each new verse of Psalm 25 starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, of course, the problem for us is that in our English translations, that doesn't come across. Um, And in fact, Psalm 25, without that acrostic to help us, it comes across perhaps as what I would describe as a messy psalm. And what I mean by this is that David doesn't start in the first section of the psalm with all his difficulties and then take them to God in prayer and then finish with praise of God. That's quite often the pattern of the Psalms. Problem or problems, prayer, praise. And and many Psalms follow that general pattern. Psalm 25 doesn't really follow that pattern. Uh, In in English, at least, it, it can give the impression that David is jumping around from problems to praise to problems to prayer and back again. And it it maybe comes across a bit messy. But for the original readers, this would have been a particularly memorable psalm because of the way uh, that the Holy Spirit through David has provided it, that acrostic style. And perhaps given that it was written in that particularly memorable way, maybe that makes it one of the most important psalms in the whole Psalter. So to try and give ourselves a sense of an ABC of prayer with this psalm, I've used an ABC outline. We don't have it in our English translations, but as we think about the psalm this evening, uh, three main points under which to consider it. And first of all this evening, A, a lot of struggles. A lot of struggles. I want to highlight three things that David brings to God in prayer, three particular struggles that he has. First of all, David here struggles with the hatred of the world. He struggles with the hatred of the world. For a lot of David's life, he faced dangerous, vicious enemies. Whether when he was younger, uh, the 10-year, almost 10-year pursuit by David of King Saul. Then when he did finally become the recognized king of Israel, he He faced all those battles against all those foreign enemies. And then David also had to deal with some of the people closest to him 
betraying him, particularly his own son Absalom on one occasion. Look what he says here in verse 2 of the psalm. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Saying there, don't, don't let these wicked men have the last laugh. God, don't let them be thinking that my God wasn't strong enough or powerful enough to, to help me, to give me victory against them. David, as we'll see throughout the psalm, he's concerned with God's glory more than his own. The hatred of the world also seems to have left David feeling very lonely. Now, in reality, David was probably very rarely completely alone, physically speaking. Even when he was on the run from Saul, uh, the book of 1 Samuel shows us how David steadily gained more and more allies and followers sympathetic to him and, and coming to him and abandoning Saul. And even when he went on the run from Absalom, many of his closest allies went with him. But the fact is that David held a unique position. He was king of the nation. And the weight and the burden of that perhaps at times was a heavy responsibility to bear. David had a target on his back that no one else had. And it perhaps left him feeling very lonely. Look at verse 16. Turn to me and be gracious to me for I am lonely and afflicted. Look at verse 19. Consider how many are my foes. He maybe feels outnumbered. And with what violent hatred they hate me. Violent hatred. These people would kill David if they got the opportunity. David faced strong, unjustified, sustained hatred for most of his life. Simply because, like his greater son, the Lord Jesus, he was God's chosen king. Seeking to live according to God's word. That made him... And it made Christ a target, an object of hatred. So he struggles with the hatred of the world. But David also struggles with confusion in his mind. Confusion in his mind. There's a sense in this psalm that David is trying to get himself back on track, spiritually speaking. That he's, that he's gone through a time of just being overwhelmed to the point of not being able to think clearly. Maybe we sometimes call it brain fog. Do you ever get that? You're just so tired out. You're exhausted from a day's work or you haven't had a break in weeks or months. Uh, maybe, maybe life at home is just extremely hectic and it gets to the point where you just don't even feel like you can make basic decisions. Someone asks you what's for dinner tonight or someone asks you what are you doing tomorrow night and you just can't even answer because you're just tired out and confused and perhaps downhearted and discouraged as well. And there's a, there's a sense of that with David here. He says in verse 17, the troubles of my heart are enlarged. And remember often, particularly in the Old Testament, when we read the words heart or mind or soul, uh, they're really all talking about the same thing, our inner being, our inner life. And David says at the moment, his inner life is just dominated with difficulty and doubt and confusion. In verse 20, he says, o, o guard my soul and deliver me. He says, let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. Now, of course, God the Lord was not David's last resort. It's not as though he's saying here, I'm coming to you because I've tried everything else. But at the same time, David is saying here, 
There's nowhere else I should turn. And there's nowhere else I can turn. I'm weighed down. I'm discouraged and confused. And there's no one else to help. And so rather than continuing to try to make decisions for himself. Look what he says in verse 4. I know we're jumping around tonight. But as I said. Messy Sam in English. Verse 4. Show me your ways O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. Perhaps David has been relying upon himself. Just trying to, as we would say, batter on. And he's exhausted. And he's confused. And so he says, God, lead me. Guide me in the way that I should go. Show me the way that I should go. Lead me out of this confusion that I'm in. He struggles with the hatred of the world, confusion in his mind. And the last struggle is that he struggles with guilt in his heart. David struggles with guilt in his heart. If you look at verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Sense of pain or anxiety that David feels seems to be at least in part because of his own sin. Or even if he doesn't see a direct connection between his struggles and his sin. It's as though here he's concerned that, that, he have a, that, that, is, that they have a clear conscience before God. That if there is any way in which he has strayed. That if he has acted sinfully or presumptuously against God in any way that God would forgive him. Just look again at verse 17. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sin. David is concerned here that even though many of the attacks he may be feeling, getting from his enemies may be unjustified. That if in any way he has outstanding guilt against God, that God would forgive him. And so he doesn't just play the victim here. He doesn't just point at the sins of other people. He looks in his own heart as well. Sometimes when we struggle or when we're unfairly treated, we can be tempted to slip into a strange sort of pride. Maybe someone has done something terrible against us and we're, and we're tempted to start uh, feeling how much better we are than them. Well, at least I haven't done that. Or, or we just blow their admitted their, their, their feeling, yes, their sin, yes, but we blow it out of all proportion. I haven't attacked them. I haven't made their life difficult. I haven't done what they've done. I'm looking pretty good compared to them. The problem isn't me, it's them. David doesn't just play the victim. He also knows that he's a sinner himself. And just in case some of his suffering may be down to his own sin. He says, pardon my guilt for it is great. Spurgeon says that David's cry for forgiveness in this psalm shows that he is more sick of his own sin than his pain. He's more concerned to be rid of his own sin than to be rid of even the other concerns in his life. And Spurgeon suggests that's a good way to be. That we're most concerned with our own sin before we start getting concerned about the sins of others. There are many Christians as well who struggle Not perhaps with people sinning against them. But they struggle with pain of one kind or another. 
physical, emotional, even spiritual pain. Sometimes pain that is not going to be relieved this side of glory. And yet they are some of the most joyful, openly thankful believers you can find. Because they know that their greatest problem is their sin. And that that sin has been dealt with through the sacrifice, the atonement of Jesus Christ. And so whatever else they have to struggle on with, they live thankful that they don't struggle with the guilt of their sin. So here's David, the mighty king, the man after God's own heart. And in this psalm, he's a man who's confused, he's lonely, he's anxious, he's hated. And he's also convicted over his own sin. And really, we've all felt these things to some extent or another in our lives. Whether or not you feel hated today, and I hope you don't feel hated today by anyone nearby, anyone in your daily life. But I can tell you for a fact you are hated If you're a Christian, Satan hates you. And he hates me. And he hates this congregation. And he hates every true uh, congregation of Christ. And because of Satan's influence in the world, the world hates us. And it's getting less and less good at hiding it. Many of you grew up in a generation where even if people weren't Christians, they... They, they showed respect or they lived according generally to Christian morality. Those days are quickly vanishing before our very eyes. The world is getting less good at hiding its hate for Christ in the church. Maybe you do feel personally hated by a colleague, by, by old friends who are not believers, who don't respect your beliefs. Maybe you felt the particular attack of the devil in this past week. He's been sowing little seeds of doubt in your mind about one thing or another. Maybe he's been sowing division in your marriage. Maybe he's been sowing seeds of resentment in your mind, boys and girls, towards your mum and dad. Maybe he's been distracting you from your walk with the Lord. Maybe you feel like David. Uh, maybe you feel guilt like David. I've, I've committed that sin again. I feel the Lord again. I didn't take that opportunity. I didn't do my work the way I should have done. I said things I shouldn't have said. Or maybe like David, you feel confused. You're just tired of having to make decisions. Do I take this job or not? Do I go out with this person or not? How do we manage the finances? How do we parent the children? What am I going to do about my health? When do I share the gospel with this person? These are the daily struggles. These are the tiring decisions that have to be made. How do we manage with all these struggles, the hatred of the world, the confusion of our hearts, the conviction of our sin? Well, David in this psalm shows us exactly what to do. And so having thought about a lot of struggles We think, secondly, how we are to bring it to the Lord. A lot of struggles bring it all to the Lord. Psalm 25 is one of my favourite opening verses of any psalm. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And if you glance back in your Bibles at Psalm 24, verse 4, you'll see that one of the requirements, we thought about this last week, 
One of the requirements for someone to be welcomed into fellowship with God is that he not lift up his soul to what is false. In this language of lifting up the soul, it's really to do with worship. Where do we direct our souls in worship? Do we direct them towards some idol? Or do we direct them toward the living God? David says he lifts up his soul to Yahweh, to the Lord. He worships God. He trusts God. Spurgeon says true prayer may be, excuse me, true prayer may be described as the soul rising from earth to have fellowship with heaven. Do you think of prayer in those terms? That in the act of praying, your soul is rising from the earth and you're going into the presence of heaven. Your voice is heard in heaven. At the throne of grace, God hears you as you pray to him. That's how powerful prayer is, that in the name of Jesus Christ, our high priest, our voices ascend to the throne of heaven. Should that not spur us on to pray more? And that's what David does in this psalm. Rather than get overwhelmed by the hatred of his enemies or the guilt or the confusion in his heart, he says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, my God, my rock, my refuge. And that's sort of how to make sense of this psalm. It's not all organized and neatly in the way that we would like, but then life isn't really organized neatly in the way that we would like. And David, all the way through the psalm, punctuates his problems with prayers. For example, as David struggles with his confusion, he asks God to instruct or lead or teach him. David is tired of making decisions for himself. And so again, as I mentioned, he says in verse 4, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. And the ESV and maybe other of your translations tonight captures it well there in verse 4. Make me to know your ways. We're not just going to know God's ways automatically, friends. By nature, we go our own way. By nature, there is pride left over in our hearts that would direct us to go whatever way we think is best. We need God's spirit. We need God's grace to make us to know his ways, to go in his paths. It takes humility to ask for that. The word there for paths could also be translated ruts or to be more modern tire tracks. Not that, again, to, to follow a way that's already laid out for you. And having lived for a number of years in the countryside, I quickly noticed that uh, the fields, you know, you, you pass these fields and they have almost permanent ruts. There's permanent tracks that the farmer can then use in future and know this is the line that I need to follow so that I don't completely destroy the whole ground, that I keep the, the tire tracks to a minimum. Rather than just trying to figure it out from scratch, you're to go in the way that is marked out for you. And David here is saying that he wants God to place him on the track laid out for him. To place him on the right way that he is to go. So he brings his confusion to God in prayer. Another prayer request that appears several times in this psalm is the word consider. Consider. Verse 18, consider my affliction and my trouble. Verse 19, consider how many are my foes. And with what violent hatred they hate me. David brings the hatred of the world to God in prayer. He says, here's the situation. Here are my enemies laid out in front of me. 
I feel powerless, but I know that you're the all-powerful God. Verse 20, deliver me. Deliver me. He says in verse 15 that God will pluck him out of the net. Feels like his enemies are laying traps for him all over the place. The day may well come, perhaps the day has already come for some of you, where you feel as though in your workplace or in family get-togethers, people are just laying traps for you. They're making life difficult for you because of your faith. They're trying to catch you out so that they can say to the employer or say to the principal or say to the government, look at this, look what this person has been doing who claims to be a Christian. And David, in seeing the the nets that his enemies are laying out for him, he brings it to the Lord. Save me out of their nets, out of their traps. And then David also brings his guilt to God in prayer. If you look at verse 11, pardon me. Verse 18, forgive all my sins. He says in verse 11, as I mentioned earlier, for your name's sake, O Lord, Pardon my guilt. Doesn't say, God, because because I've spent all this time trying to do all this great stuff to make up for all my sin, pardon my guilt. He doesn't say, God, because I'm not as bad as my enemies, pardon my guilt. He says, for your name's sake, because you're a God of grace, because you're a God of mercy. David knew, as we do, that there is only one way that God can uh, atone, can, can forgive our sins, and that is through sacrifice of atonement. David, like Abraham, was looking forward to the day when a final sacrifice for the people's sins would be made. And we know that that day has come through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ at the cross. And through him today, we can say, pardon my sin, for it is great. And David does the same here. He asks... For forgiveness, He brings his sin to the Lord and asks God to deal with that as well. And just notice David's use of the word remember in verses 6 and 7. This is very important. He says, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, your grace, your covenant love. Remember it. And then immediately after that, he says in verse 7, remember not the sins of my youth. Or my transgressions, according to your steadfast love, remember me. It's important to remember that the word remember, as it's often used in scripture, particularly when believers ask God to remember something, it's not the way we use the word remember. We say, you know, remember to buy milk or remember where you put your car keys. And it's because we forget these things. God doesn't forget. Really, the word remember is asking God to act. We saw this at the beginning of the book of Exodus that God saw his people uh, in Egypt in in turmoil and God remembered his covenant and then God acts upon his covenant. And that's what David is asking God to do here, to act according to the promises he's made, the promise to forgive sin, the promise not to hold his sins against his people, the promise to forgive So friends, David takes his confusion to God in prayer. Show me your ways. He takes his enemy's hatred to God in prayer. Consider how many are my foes. And he takes his need of forgiveness to God in prayer. Remember, forgive, pardon.
pardon my guilt. And this is exactly what we need to do when any of these things threaten to overwhelm us, friends. Bring it to the Lord. Bring it to the Lord. Sometimes you need to be hourly bringing things to the Lord. We've certainly, that's been brought home to us in early parenting years. There are times that all you can do is cry out to the Lord. Bring it to the Lord. We're to ask God, God's Spirit for help, that, to, to help us find the roots of his word, to get back into the, you know what it's like when you've been off track and then if you, and you, you get back into the tire tracks and you're back into the grooves and you're back into the way that you're to go. And sometimes spiritually, that's exactly what we need. Maybe you don't feel particularly confident today about the week ahead or the month ahead. Maybe there are doubts battering you, temptations working on you, questions swirling in you. Bring it to the Lord. Boys and girls, maybe there are things in school that would make you anxious or a big change for some of you coming in September, a change of school or coming up into another year group and and it's going to be even more difficult than it was in the past. Bring it to the Lord. As you see the state our country is in at the minute, more confusion and turmoil in the international scene in the news just yesterday. Some people get very anxious about it. Bring it to the Lord. Make plans for work or study in the near future or for your summer. Bring it to the Lord. Even your times of refreshment and relaxation, bring those to the Lord. There are godly and ungodly ways to relax. As you enter into relationships or you plan for your children's needs, you consider you, where you stand in your own Christian walk at this juncture in your life. Bring it to the Lord. Look at the great promise of this psalm in verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. God will never turn away anyone who is humbly coming to him and saying, Show me your ways. That's a promise for you today. He instructs sinners in the way. And that brings us to consider lastly this evening, having thought about a lot of struggles, the need to bring it all to the Lord, we finish with the challenge of waiting. The challenge of waiting. Look at verse 21. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. That's really the whole spirit of this psalm. I wait for you because by the end, friends, and this often is the case in the psalms, by the end of the psalm, David's enemies aren't yet defeated. His problems haven't gone away. Perhaps he's still having to fight back the doubts. But he waits. He's willing to wait patiently, trusting in God's timing and instruction for his life. Look at the beautiful words of verse 14. The friendship of the Lord or the secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. It's interesting the way some translations go for friendship, others go for counsel or secret guidance. But if you think about it, those words are closely interchangeable. Your real friends, your close friends, you, you let them in on things that other people don't know about. They're your secret counselors, so to speak. Jesus said to his disciples, You are my friends if you do as I have commanded you. 
Jesus called his disciples his friends because he had told them things that he had told no one else. And we can be God's friends by being humbly submissive to his ways, by waiting upon his counsel and his guidance in our lives. And David says that as we trust God, he will make known to us his covenant step by step, day by day. We will see his sustaining grace providing for our needs. This takes, this takes patience. This takes trust. Sometimes we have to wait for situations that we're praying for and praying for and praying for. And we don't like waiting. There's a phrase people use nowadays called life hacks. I'm sure YouTube is filled with life hacks. Maybe some of you have found some really good life hacks for things around the house or things in your work. And life hacks, of course, are supposed to be quick solutions that you get around things that could end up taking a lot of time and a lot of effort and you get them done and sorted very quickly. But friends, more often than not, our God is not a God of life hacks. He's a God who challenges us to wait, to have the humility, as David says in verse 9, to walk one step at a time in the tracks that he has marked out for us, even if we can't see where it's leading us. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1 verse 6, You rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour. When? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. It might be that we are tested and we are waiting and we are trusting and we are hoping from now until the day we see Christ. It might be until that day comes we feel as though we are in a furnace of trial. But friends, it's so that we will become the holy people that God wants us to be. And the psalmist says that God himself is good and upright It's a good God who is teaching us. It's a good God who is refining us. It's a good God who is making us wait so that we will become good and upright as well. Sometimes people say they want God's guidance and really they don't. A Christian does not need guidance about whether or not to marry a non-Christian. An employee does not need guidance about whether to do something dishonest just to keep the boss happy. A young person does not need guidance about taking a long-term job in a city where there is no gospel preaching confessional church. What is needed in situations like that is humility and patience to follow the path that we know deep down God has laid out for us. Even when it might cost us the relationship or the impressive job or whatever it may be. But the more frequently we do that, the easier those decisions become in future. The more confident we will be in the face of the world's hatred. And the more quickly we will repent of sin so that the guilt of it does not hinder our walk with the Lord. And so David's big challenge in Psalm 25 to us, friends, is this. Wait. Wait upon the Lord. 
And as we close, just notice the very last verse of the psalm, verse 22. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. A lot of the psalms, this one included, can often sound quite individualistic. You know, this is one man who wrote this psalm through the uh, guidance and power of the Holy Spirit. And yes, here, David, the original writer and uh, Christ who embodied much of this psalm himself. They're talking about their own problems and their own needs. But that last verse of the psalm, friends, reminds us that King David knows that his struggles, though they might have been in some ways unique to him in, in terms of what exactly he faced, they're the kinds of struggles that all God's people face. And this is why he says, Remember Israel, sorry, redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Redeem all God's people. What I've prayed for myself in this psalm, I pray for all God's people. And in those words as well, friends, we find the heart of King David and also the heart of King Jesus, who, like David, had to pray for guidance, who, just like David, felt the hatred of his enemies. And who very much like David felt the weight of sin. Except that the weight that Jesus bore was not the weight of his own sin. But the weight of our sin. His people's sins. The true Israel whom he came to redeem. And because he has redeemed his friends. We can pray bold prayers like Psalm 25. Psalm 25 seems a bit of a messy psalm. But as one writer says, we may crave something far more orderly than a ragtag plea about deliverance and forgiveness and guidance with nothing but the dry bones of the Hebrew alphabet to hold it all together. But this messiness is likely much closer to real Christian experience than many modern offerings. So let's stick with it. Psalm 25 is a messy psalm, but life is messy. In the middle of it, let's continue to lift up our souls to the Lord and ask him to instruct us in the way that we should go and to wait patiently for him to do that. Amen.